And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. It's time now for our guest line segment, brought to you each week by our good friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland, producing the best farm-raised catfish in America, located just west of Greenwood. And each week we feature a great restaurant that's supplied by Heartland that specializes in phenomenal catfish dishes. And this week we stay local in Greenwood. Heartland doesn't have far to deliver this. It's the Crystal Grill in downtown Greenwood. Well, you know, there aren't many places that make Jen and me want to get in the car, drive away from Starville, go for a fantastic dinner. But a few times a year, we load up the friends, we make the short drive to Greenwood to eat at the Crystal Grill. And I've had their catfish several times. You can get it fried, blackened, broiled, or lemon-peppered. And if there's one thing I could say about the Crystal Grill, I've never had anything but an exceptional dining experience. It just seems the catfish makes that coconut pie with that mile-high meringue that much better. So this weekend, when you're trying to figure out what to venture to, make the Crystal Grill in Greenwood a part of your plans. And once again, this is brought to you by our good friends at Heartland Catfish. Man, let's go to the Heartland Hotline and former Bulldog Dell Unser joins us. Played at Mississippi State 1964 to 1966. And Mr. Unser, we really appreciate you joining us. Well, it's good to, good to uh, be back there a little bit. We have gotten back there to uh, a couple of reunions over the years, and it's been a lot of fun. Well, Mr. Unser, Dell Unser played 1964-1966. Growing up in Illinois, and we asked this question a good bit of former players, how did you end up from east-central Illinois to east-central Mississippi? Just after I graduated high school, my dad had come down to see one of his old teammates, Paul Gregory, and check on uh, availability and, and whatever as a possible scholarship opportunity for me. Uh, who at that time was doing more pitching than I was hitting or uh, outfield or first base or anything. So at any rate, we, we wanted to go see the campus and, and take a look around and had a meeting with Paul Gregory. And he told my dad, who, by the way, had eight kids. So so uh, he, he wasn't uh, in any hurry to, to pay a whole lot of tuition and everything. So uh, Paul Gregory said, well, we'll give him a one-year shot. And if he doesn't work out, Al, my dad, he said, we uh, maybe can find something for him to do in the clubhouse and stuff. And of course, my dad was a minor league manager, off and on, and a, and a, and a scout. So, and he says, Dell's done all that clubhouse stuff, you know, in, in the minor league, shine shoes and done laundry and all that stuff. So, either way, it looks like it might work out. So that's how it all got started. And then, then I came down there. I took a bus ride down to Starkville and, and uh, had two two little duffel bags, and I was off to my freshman year. <laughs> you mentioned a guy that we know as just kind of a legend around Mississippi State. Obviously, Mississippi State fans of more recent years are familiar with John Cohen and Pat McMahon, Ron Polk. Tell us a little bit about Paul Gregory. He won four SEC championships. You were right in the middle of the first two of those. What was Paul Gregory like as a coach? He was a um, he was quiet. He'd go around at practices and and uh, mention a few things, and he'd have me throwing on the sidelines, pitching and stuff, and making a couple of comments here and there. But he wasn't a stand over you and make sure you did it type guy. He said, "This is you know this is the way we do it." And and then he had a, a good assistant coach, a very very energetic guy named Tom DeArmi, who was kind of um, 
I mean, he, he was the active fungo hitter and everything else. Of course, Paul Gregory would hit some fungos too, but but Tom was was a very take-charge guy and made sure we did cutoffs and relays and, and all the basic fundamentals. And, and when it came time to turn me from a first baseman into an outfielder, he worked my butt off and made me better than I otherwise would have been. Uh, so it was a good combination of uh, Paul Gregory made up the lineups. He he, uh, he knew who could play. He knew matchups. He knew he knew an awful lot about the game of baseball. You know, having pitched in the big leagues and, and some in the Pacific Coast League where a lot of the big league players went because they could make more money, including my dad, for four years uh, as a catcher. So he and Paul knew each other from way back. You know, you mentioned a name right there. We're talking with Dell Unser, played at Mississippi State 1964 to 1966, back-to-back SEC championships under Paul Gregory in 65 and 66, enjoyed a 15-year career in the major leagues. And you mentioned Tom DeArmai. So many times when I've heard stories about Tom DeArmai, and it's very interesting what you just said about Coach Gregory, about how he was kind of the, the laid back of the two. Tom DeArmai was very cognizant of every single thing that went on with that program, very similar to what Ron Polk and Pat McMahon were back in the 1980s. But they said that Tom DeArmai was as good as anybody in the country at getting a field ready to play. said he was one of the best groundskeepers you've ever seen of taking care of a field. Yeah, he was. He did it all. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, my, our junior and senior year, uh, they were just clearing the ground for your field right there, uh, the Duty Noble Field. We had to play in Columbus. So my little work program that I got, part of my scholarship, was we would go over and we would do some groundkeeping work on the uh, trying to build the actual playing field for the, for the future teams. We never got to play on it. <laughs> you brought up a good point, playing that junior and senior season at Redbird Park over in Columbus. And that uh, first year on the south side of Scott Field where Dorman Hall is located right now, that, that old ballpark, that old field where Dorman Hall now is, what was it like playing in the center of campus just south of Scott Field? Well, it was, it was, it was neat. Uh, my sophomore year, I hurt my elbow pitching. Late in that season, I got I, I came back and played a little first base because I couldn't uh, get my arm up to throw over the top. <laughs> but it was a, uh, a friendly park, and uh, you know the kids from campus could just walk right in. It was right in the middle of everything by the old armory there, and uh, we had some uh, some guys. You know, they say, well, uh, Butch Estridge, you know, he used to hit them over up on top of that metal barn, and this, and you know, it was uh, kind of interesting. There was a, there was a lot of tradition there. And then Frank Montgomery wheeled some great games. When I was a freshman, he was a senior. Of course, the freshman couldn't play. But Coach Gregory would keep me around uh, the the varsity team to throw batting practice to him because I was left-handed and there weren't many left-hand pitchers. So so they gave him some reps against left-handers. You look back at those 65 and 66 seasons, you won the back-to-back SEC titles. And some of the names, as I was looking back through the record books, just kind of jump out at you as, as guys that are still remembered at Mississippi State. You think of a Frank Patera, you think of James Carroll and Ken Tatum and, you know, Mike Burns. Uh, you know, I saw a game where I think it was maybe James Carroll who pitched a 14 inning game. You scored the winning run in a game you're playing against Kenny Stabler at Alabama. Yeah. How is it? <laughs> the left-hander. Actually, Mike Burns was one heck of a ball player and he could he could run, he could he could play the heck out of the outfield and and he was a 300 hitter. Um and and not only that, just a great person. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us and uh just a he and Martha were were 
were great people. But you know, we we had a, a team full of guys that could do a lot of things. We, we had speed, we had pitching, we had depth of pitching. We had a, a lot of a lot of good pitchers on the team. Uh, Claude Pasto and and of course Tatum was the ace, and uh, Frank Chambers had come in to close it down. Oftentimes, and Dick Jarbo would come in there, and no left-hander could ever hit him. And nothing ever got through Don Bell at shortstop. He was phenomenal. There's Wayne Meadows uh, I, I, uh, was my junior year, and, and Bill Bacon came in at second base after that. And, uh, we, we just had a, a good depth of uh, guys that could, pl- could not just catch the ball, but they could hit, you know, and uh, pretty much up and down the lineup. Talking with Dell Unser, played his state 64-66, to 66, and uh, you were drafted several times before you actually signed a big league contract. What kept you at Mississippi State and turning down the pros as many times as you did? Well, there a couple of things. We had well, our junior year that was really good, and then we get beat in Gastonia, and, and that left a, a, a sour taste in our mouths. And I really wanted to come back because everybody was coming back. Pittsburgh drafted me in the wintertime at the double-A level, which would have been the third round. And, and then uh, the following spring, uh, Minnesota drafted me, and I, I went up after my junior year to play in the Basin League uh, in South Dakota in the summertime. I pitched and played the outfield up there. And Minnesota wanted to sign me at the end of that season. A boy named Freddie Glass from Alabama and I were on that team, and we went into Minnesota and worked out with them. And they offered me... Um, well, back then, I think it was like 25000 in the third round, which was good money back then because the draft had started and all the, all the big bonuses, you know, were cut out. So I went back and my brother at that time was in Vietnam and he says, you better get your butt playing baseball and go back to school. He says, one of us doing this is enough. <laughs> if, if, if you join the service, I'm going to kick your butt type of, type of big brother talk. And so I stayed in school, and, and uh, my, my high school sweetheart and, I, and myself uh, get married in, in the, uh, the winter of my senior year and, and come back, and one thing led to another. I, I get drafted in the first round by the Washington Senators after, after going to center field. Gary Washington, I was playing first base my junior year, and Gary Washington came in here and swung the bat good. He didn't play anywhere but first, so I was going to look for another job, so I Tommy Armay got me accustomed to center field, and I had played it before, but uh, not with the intensity that he made me go get it. <laughs> and so, uh, at any rate, I was drafted as a center fielder uh, by the Senators on an expansion team. The rest is kind of history. It was uh, it was a, a wonderful opportunity and, and uh, the right place at the right time. I got up there after a year and a half in the minor leagues and, and played center field for them. And we're talking with Dell Unser. We'll step away and come back. We'll talk about that big league career. He played his state 1964 to 1966. Back with more on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. One strike pitch. Hot smash. Pass Aikens in the right field. Schmidt can run. He's running hard. He's rounding third. They're going to try to score him. Here comes the throw. They'll not get him. We're tied. Del Unser again comes through a big base hit, this time between Aikens and the bag. He has been outstanding for how many years now, Tom? Coming into the clutch, sitting on that bench call. And what you heard right there was a ninth-inning double, a game-tying double. Del Unser, who we're talking with, knocking in Mike Schmidt 
in Game 5 of the 1980 World Series. And I don't know if that was a big moment for you in your career. You talked about being drafted by the Washington Senators. What are some of those big memories you had in that 15-year career in the major leagues? Well, you know, uh, the first game, uh, usually there's a presidential opening there in Washington, D.C., and and uh, Tricky Dick Nixon, I, you know, uh, was one of the years he throws out the first pitch and and all those types of things. And those are those are memorable. I even got to eat down in the Senate dining room because Senator Stennis was an MSU fan, and he was head of the Armed Services Committee there. And those are exciting times. And, and the guy that did it was our, our tennis player, Matt Cameron, uh, from Mississippi State. And we, we stayed in contact over the years. Uh, and, and he said, would you like to have lunch with Senator Stennis? And <laughs> so that was, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And, uh, but, you know, big moments there, um, uh, playing for Ted Williams for three years, especially the first year he came on in 1969, which is my second year with the, with the Senators. And I hit 230 my first year. I was hitting real good for about half a season and, and it caught up with me and they figured me out, but I didn't figure them out. And then, so the next year, he uh, he was he was brilliant at reading pitchers and knowing what they're going to throw and and uh, uh, analyzing him and and I really learned a lot from him and then of course later in my career I played outfield center field most of all the time for the first eight or nine years and then I played all the outfield positions in first base and then the mo- the less I started playing every day after about ten years in the big leagues the the better I got at pinch hitting and uh, and I could always play defense whether it was first base or the outfield so. In 1979, I had three straight pinch hit home runs. That had to be a memorable thing because it was a major league record. Nobody had ever done it before. And um, in consecutive pinch hit appearances. And the third one was off of Raleigh Fingers to win the game. Uh, and I never hit one to center field since college almost. And, and I, actually, I hit one off of him to center field because I wasn't a big power hitter. But um, that was exciting. And then I, I, after all the years that I played, I'd never been on a World Series team, and, and in 1980, we win our division, and then we go play Houston, which was a gut-wrenching playoff in the Astrodome, where it's probably the loudest noises I've ever heard in my life. You know, their fans were crazy, and of course, the Philly fans were always nuts, and uh, it was just a very exciting series, and went back and forth and back and forth in extra innings, and, and I was fortunate enough to get a chance to have a couple of good games pinch hitting and then staying in the game and getting another hit in game five. And then we go to the World Series with Kansas City and get some big hits off Quisenberry, who was a relief pitcher of the year. Kind of, it was a mag- it was really a magical year, and, and at the you know it's something very nice at the end of a lot of years of trying to do it and then finally getting to do it. You know, there are guys in Major League history, you think back to maybe a Rusty Staub, who was a guy known for being a pinch hitter. At the back part of your career, that kind of became your role, much more than everyday player was the pinch hitter. And I've always thought that there isn't much tougher to do in sports than to hit a Major League fastball. I would think it has to be that much harder to sit there for eight innings and then come turn around a major league fastball for a double. How was it that you were able to be so successful as a pinch hitter on the back half of your career? Well, I think I actually played with Rusty in uh, New York and he was a pinch hitter then. And I, I, I would sit on the bench with, with him at times and he would say, look, 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 he'd just whisper something to me. You see what he's doing? You see what he's doing where he's stepping, he's stepping in his windup. He steps way back when he throws his fastball, and he shortens it up when he throws a curveball, or he's over the top more with a curveball, and he's out there three-quarters with the fastball. I mean, all these little things 
that he'd be he he'd be wishing he didn't want to tell everybody, you know, because then all of a sudden it'll get back to that pitcher. But he'd whisper stuff to you, and and uh, you better you better listen, you know. Ted Williams would say, you know, this guy's sixty forty curve, or, or this guy's. You know, some of us couldn't hit like that, but I mean, the point he was making a lot of times was, oh, this guy's got an awesome curveball. He says, yeah, he's got an awesome curveball. He hasn't thrown one strike with it this whole game. He says, so why are you looking for it? You're looking for something you can't hit? Or, or he's going to get ahead with you with a fastball, and you better, by golly, be ready for it. Those types of thoughts over the years, and, and then Nellie Fox helping me with my bunting and stuff and the short game things, and if you have to get a guy over, if you have to get on base to start an inning, um, I used to do that a lot the first five or six years I played in the big leagues. Um, and there, there are so many people along the way. The guy that probably promoted me biggest uh, was after uh, after hitting 220 and 230. They jumped me into double A out of the big out of uh, Mississippi State in York, Pennsylvania. And I was just over my head. I had a bat that I couldn't hardly bench press, and I shouldn't have been swinging it. But anyway. We go to instructional league after I hit 220 and I hit 230, and I had one home run. And uh, Harry Walker with Houston, no less, is uh, we're sharing a team, an instructional league team with Houston. So he's he's teaching Houston guys and, and Washington Senators guys, and he got me choking up on a bat and going to left field, and and I led the league down there and hitting the next year on the center fielder for the Senators, and that's how quick it can happen. So all these people along the way. Billy DeMars helped me with my swing. I'd, I'd start, I'd start trying to uh, lift the ball and and pull it and stuff, and he'd get me back on the tee, and I'd be hitting line drives up the middle and and um, have my stroke back. And we did that till the last day of the season in 1980 uh, when uh, uh, we were playing Houston. We'd go down in the tunnel. He says, "What? This is the last day of the year." I said, "I don't feel right." So we went down there in the tunnel. And we started hitting balls, and by golly, by the end of the game, I felt great and uh, was lucky enough to get a couple of hits. Talking with Dell Unser, and you mentioned some of those guys. We talk about a Nelly Fox and a Rusty Staub, and we talk about those teammates at Mississippi State. Playing 15 years in the big leagues, you play with some big-name guys, and you talk about Staub, but a Pete Rose, a Mike Schmidt. Does does anyone really stand out who was just really on a different level as far as their work ethic on and off the field? Well, Carlton off the field was almost sick with his with his kung fu uh, exercises with a guy named Gus Heffling, who was a martial arts master, I guess. And uh, he he had his own regimen. He never ran. He was just in there kicking and uh, doing all kinds of exercises. Uh, Mike Schmidt was one of the more gifted athletes I think I'd ever seen defensively, offensively, of course, five hundred plus home runs and and uh, gold gloves at third base. Um, but we had a whole team of all-stars, Bob Boone, Larry Boa, Manny Trio, Pete Rose at first. Pete, Pete went out to beat you every day. He went out to get as many hits as he possibly could. And, and here, here I am in, in Philadelphia, I, I'm backing up outfield in first base, and he never wanted to come out of a game. I always wanted to get in late in the game just to get a little action, but he never wanted to come out of a game. He wanted to get another hit. <laughs> That's how you get that many hits, I guess. But he, he had a lot of enthusiasm. You know, it's interesting when players make the transition from being on the field to being a coach. You had uh, a time as the hitting coach for the Phillies. I wonder how much did you call upon guys like Ted Williams and the instruction that you had gotten from them? How much did you call upon those experiences as you were the hitting coach at the major league level? 
Well, yeah, some of the drills from Billy DeMars and, and Ted Williams' way to break down a pitcher and, and what he's doing, uh, the actual mechanics of the swing, a little more from Billy DeMars. Ted never talked about swing mechanics. He says, well, you're in the big leagues, and everybody's got a decent swing. Yeah. But he still, if, if you have his, bat, uh, his book, My Turn at Bat, uh, it gives you a pretty good uh, thing on hitting mechanics and the reason why you was he was he was before his time. Now everybody's talking about uppercut and, and loft and hitting the ball apart. Well, he, he, he liked the five degree uppercut even back then because that's the angle at which the ball was coming from the pitcher who was higher up than you. You know, so it, it all made very good sense and. And his stuff was, hey, here it is, take it or leave it. <laughs> he wasn't going to coddle you. And then as your time working with the Phillies, you know, as a scout and in player development, I start thinking of guys like Jimmy Rollins, Scott Rowland, who you played a big part of their player development. What makes a guy like Jimmy Rollins and a guy like Scott Rowland, what, what makes them what they are? I, I th- a lot of times, not, not always for sure, but I think they both had good parents to begin with. And then both of them are coming out of high school. Uh, Scott Rowland would have been by far a high number one pick if he had intimated that he was going to sign. But everybody thought he was going to go to college. Our scout in the Chicago area, you know, just kept after him, kept after him, and uh, found out that, you know, he might sign. So we took him in the second round and signed. And then Jimmy Rollins, he, he never knew a challenge that he couldn't meet. He was five foot seven. <laughs> Little little body put together pretty well, even as a little little kid. But he he had he had moxie. He would stick his head in the coach's room, and and uh, they would be teasing him, and he'd be teasing them right back. You know, and he's seventeen, right out of high school, and he'd do it respectfully. He didn't do it negatively, but and you just knew he had some spark in him. You know, we always tried to make him bunt and hit the ball the other way, but uh, uh, he did it some. He could do it if he wanted to, but he you know he had a lot of home runs later on too. But he was a great shortstop, very sure-handed, a good teammate, a good person. You've seen a lot of baseball, a career that's, what, more than 50 years, I would guess, or right at it. How do you yeah. see the game of baseball today? Where do you, We talk a lot, at, or you hear people on TV talking about the health of the game. Where do you see the health of the game of baseball today? Well, I, you know, a couple of problems, I think, with, with the marketing or the actual ticket-taking uh, – it's it's incredibly expensive for a family of four to go to a ball game, and and I um, thank goodness a lot of it's on TV, and there's great TV contracts, and uh, if you're a big market team, they're unbelievably good. But there's there's still the the corporate entities uh, with their super boxes and their box seats and everything are are uh, keeping baseball in the money. But I, I sure wish they could do more uh, on the marketing in uh, to get families as interested as they, they used to be. I know in the, in, in the town of Philadelphia, I mean, there are great grandparents, grandparents, dads and kids that they've got they've got memorabilia hanging on their walls for almost a century. And uh, they're really into the game and uh, their families are into the game. Uh, I'd like to see some of that come back. I'd like to see the game played without the emphasis solely on the home run. They, people, there, it was an embarrassment in my day to strike out. They don't care about striking out today. They just uh, you get paid to hit home runs and, and uh, drive in runs, but uh, you also get paid to win games to score a run and make a run when you have to make it at the end of the game and uh, be able to handle the bat to, to uh, move a runner 
to hit behind the runner, to hit and run, which they don't do. I think that's one of the reasons Bart and I are such big fans of college baseball because you still see a lot of that, hey, man on second, Absolutely. nobody out, let's ground one to second base. Absolutely. And, yeah, and, and then you might accidentally get an RBI. But um, that part of the game bothers me. Um, the money bothers me to the extent, uh, well, a couple of reasons. It's kind of un- unreal. When we, when we played, I think hockey's still together pretty much as a team unit. And when we played, you know, the guys would eat together, they'd go out together, they, they did a lot of stuff together. And uh, unfortunately today, when the team's on the road, they got their limos picking them up, they got their entourages with them, they got this and that. And, uh, probably a little more prevalent in basketball than baseball, but baseball for sure. It's kind of unfortunate that they're not as maybe cohesive uh, as they used to be. And I mentioned this, and <laughs> four, four of the uh, hockey players today, for the Coyotes here, I, I played golf over a place called Greyhawk out here where I do an annual thing. And these four guys were just having a blast. And that's the way we used to do it. You know, go out, play golf together and have a couple of beers together, whatever. Uh, I don't think they do that as much anymore. Hey, Mr. Hunter, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And uh, always great to talk with Bulldog Greats. And it was a lot of fun to talk to you today. Well, I hope to get back down there and see you guys. Come on anytime. Oh, wow. How great that is to talk to Dell Hunter, to talk about names like Ted Williams, Pete Rose, and so many of those guys on that Phillies teams, and Rusty Staub. Man, you talk about a look back at some baseball history with that interview with Dell Hunter. So that'll do it for another week here on Out of Left Field. We appreciate you joining us. Once again, we're brought to you by our good friends at Farm Bureau. And until next week, for Charlie Winfield, I'm Bart Gregory saying so long. You've been listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau.